It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. So we did it with redistricting. Now we're going to do it with the debt ceiling and federal and municipal financing, making something that might not seem interesting, but you know it's important, making it interesting to you and also relevant to your life. So to help me with this task, I have Andrew Cohen. Welcome, Andrew. Yes, great to be with you, Laura. So everyone's talking about, first of all, let me tell you a little about Andrew. He is a reporter at the Commercial Observer. He came to the Commercial Observer from the bond buyer. But like all good reporters, he started at a local weekly, as did yours truly. (laughs) So he knows how to report from the ground up. So there's a lot of talk. We're recording on Monday, the 30th of January. There's a lot of talk right now about the debt ceiling. It looks like Kevin McCarthy... The speaker, the House speaker, is going to be meeting with President Biden on Wednesday, I read in the paper. But we've sort of seen this game of chicken a lot around the debt ceiling. So people might not want to admit that they don't exactly know what all of this means. Can you simplify what is the debt ceiling and what is this all about? Yes. Basically, it sounds complex, and in a lot of ways it is. But I think if, you know, the simplest way to kind of break it down is basically the U.S. has been borrowing a lot of money really going back to World War One. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is, is when this all began. And they've basically been Kicking the can down the road, I would uh, is probably the best way to put it in yeah. terms of each time the debt ceiling comes up, instead of like finding a way to deal with it in a permanent way, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, well, we'll just keep raising it. And that has happened multiple times. And the last time this really came to a head was 2000. 11, which I know we might get into a bit a yes, little bit later. I want to get into that because that can yeah. inform what mistakes we want to avoid exactly. in 2023. Yes. And yes, there's a I know Speaker McCarthy has mentioned that, you know, he does not want to see the U.S. default. But there is a lot of concern, though, that there is going to be a, a lot of game of chicken and that there could be we could get close, if nothing else, to potential default, and that would have a lot of consequences uh, for everybody. And this is money that the United States owes to whom? And by the way, to put it in perspective, it's $31.4 trillion of debt. (laughs) To whom do we owe that? Well, it's basically investors, people who you invest in U.S. treasuries over the years, and that's basically who it's owed to. It's also, you know, owed to, you know, perhaps, you know, foreign governments mm-hmm. as well, a lot of different investors over the years. And it's an obviously it's an astronomical number to say the least. But with you know Yeah, and and, and also thir- so thirty one point four billion dollars in that the United States government owes, the interest payments on that debt are about four hundred billion a year. So four hundred billion of our tax dollars is going just for the interest on the debt. Yeah, exactly. And you know, not addressing this, you know, when you hear the potential of cuts to Social Security, such cuts to Medicare, right. cuts to food stamps. I mean, that's when it really starts to affect people's lives. And, you know, I don't know. I don't think we'll get to that point, but there's going to be a lot of talk about that. And, and, you know, Social Security, Medicare, you know, those kinds of automatic entitlements, 
That's about 64% of the federal budget. So that's a significant amount. Yeah. So cutting the budget, you know, actually, I want to ask you another question, and I hope I'm not being all over the place here, but people who are fiscal hawks are saying we got to cut spending. We got to cut spending. Is there a relation like, let's say we cut spending, is that going to make the debt better? Is it going to make it start to go down? Yeah, well, I would say probably not, because <laughs> because I think, it, you know, it's easy to say to cut spending, but obviously there's consequences to that. And chances are, I think eventually there'll be more spending that's needed. You know, if you maybe cut military spending a little bit, then there's going to be more need for other types of spending. So I don't know if that's, yes, it would help a little bit, but obviously there's a big, you know, substantial problem that's long ongoing. And we haven't even gotten into yet in terms of, you know, the credit rating impact of this in terms of just getting close to, you know, nearing the debt limit and how in 2011 when this happened, Mm -hmm. you know, the U.S. lost its AAA credit rating. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, affects people, affects the country's borrowing costs. And, you know, I know we might get into a little bit later about how that also... You know what? Let's let's get into it now. So 2011, there was, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but from what I have read, there was a policy that was leaked from the Treasury that either Congress raises the debt ceiling or the Treasury will prioritize debt service, that is interest payments on the mm-hmm. federal debt, that $400 million we were talking about, over spending on federal programs. And that's where the freakout really happened. And that's hurt the stock market, but it also hurt the credit rating. Yes. Does, it, does this, okay, the credit rating is affected. I'm living my life. I don't really care. Does that affect my life? It does. And I'll break it down even to, you know, to an even more local level. Obviously, the U.S., as a whole, that's a huge thing. But if you, you know, wherever you live, I mean, obviously, in our in both of our cases, Nassau County, and mm-hmm. you were Nassau County executive for four years when the county got upgraded. I but- will thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna try to wedge that in somehow. But <laughs> first time in fifteen years was the county's bond rating upgraded under my tenure. Just yes, saying. Exactly, and people, uh, you know, the average person might not think that's a big deal, but right, nobody cared. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> It's, but it really is a big deal, and, and you really feel it more when a credit rating goes down because then the borrowing cost for – if you live in Nassau County, then the borrowing costs for, you know, for that county are going to go up, and that might not seem like a big deal. but Right. right. It, How does that – what does that mean? But you know, when, if, the, they, if, if it's going to cost the county more to borrow money right. for infrastructure projects or capital improvements, you know, necessary expenditures – then if their borrowing costs are going up, they're going to have to make up that difference somewhere. Might be higher taxes, might be higher fees on parks or, you know, other county facilities. At some point, it's going to hit you in the pocketbook. And and it really comes to a head in a lot of ways, like, you know, the 2008 financial crisis. When that happened, a lot of local and state governments took a big hit from that. I mean, I used to cover Atlantic City very closely Mm. when I was at Bomb Buyer, and they came very close to defaulting on their debt Mm. in um, 2016. Eventually, Mm -hmm. the state of New Jersey took them over. But it was kind of a knock-on effect because the casino revenues went way down after the financial crisis. They also had a lot of increased competition in the Northeast from for gaming. So that was part of that. Mm -hmm. But the recession was a big part of that. And And they took a big dip in their credit rating to an extreme level. This does impact, and obviously now we're talking about the country, but Mm -hmm. the credit rating does impact people. And just coming close to, you know, reaching the debt 
limit in 2011 was enough for S&P to downgrade the U.S. We'll was see it, if that, has, that happens again. But Has it been upgraded since then, or has it remained at that one step down? You know, the rating agencies have different... I don't have off the top of my head what the exact ratings are, but yeah. there's S&P, there's Moody's, there's mm-hmm. Fitch. Mm-hmm. They all have different ratings, so I can't remember exactly okay. which one. But, you know, and obviously triple it wasn't a triple A when it got downgraded, So and that's the highest level you right. can be at. And so going down a level, it might not seem like a big deal, but, you know, any kind of increase in borrowing costs will eventually trickle down to everyone. So the debt ceiling story may be a little more present in people's minds right now. Daniel Henninger, Henninger of the Wall Street Journal wrote recently, and I thought this was a really interesting point, federal spending for most people normally runs as background noise, which is true. But because of the pandemic and because of the money that you know, we're helping with the Ukraine, federal spending, if spending is more in people's minds. So they're sort of more engaged in this. But he goes on to say, the end game is not in question. The debt ceiling will be raised. Is everybody that confident? You know, I think most people are confident that, that a deal will be reached, but there is concern about the process being messy. And it got messy in right. 2011, certainly. Right. And, and you saw the consequences of that mess. Yes. You alluded to it earlier. The S Back then, the stock market had its worst performance since 2008. And we know how bad 2008 was in terms yeah. of the great financial crisis. So there were, you know, and that's another way this impacts the average person, the stock market. You know, you're, if there is a lot of chaos with the debt ceiling issue, you know, stock market is going to is going to take a hit. So that that's another thing to be concerned about for the average person. And that does affect the average person for yes. sure. Yeah. Wow. So you're pretty confident that there'll be a lot of drama. There could be yeah. some residual side effects from the drama, but we're not going to default. Yeah, based on from what I've been reading and from what I've I actually covered a few weeks ago, I covered it was at a commercial real estate finance conference mm-hmm. in Miami and there was a panel about, you know, politics and government panel, where they touched on a variety of topics related to federal and mostly federal elections and how they played out in 2022. But one of the big issues they touched on was the debt ceiling. And the experts on this panel who, you know, track it pretty closely and how it impacts commercial real estate, they were pretty confident that, you know, that Kevin McCarthy will not let that happen. But Mm -hmm. there was concern that, especially the some of the Freedom Caucus members of the Republicans, Congress will, you know, make the process messy and that as a result, you know, the, like I said, the stock market could take a hit and that there could be a lot of residual damage. There are some politicians that don't mind chaos and horrible consequences. And I'm not saying that's not a partisan thing. It's just the truth. Do you find in your reporting that, you know, not every politician is an economics major, They might not be as literate about finance and the economy as, say, you or (laughs) experts in the field. Have you ever had a situation where you're reporting on it and you're thinking to yourself with your sort of objective mind, hey, wait a minute, this is all politics and it's actually really destructive for X municipality or X state or X federal government? Oh, yeah, all the time. And in fact, when I covered, I mentioned before how I covered Atlantic City very closely, I mean, it got really messy there, not just the financial side, but the political side, because the mayor of Atlantic City at the time, Don Guardian, and the governor, Chris Christie, they were really clashing a lot. And it got so bad at one point that, you know, the mayor of Atlantic City basically said he had no contact 
with Governor Christie for an extended period. I forget how long it was at wow. the time, but it was months. I and mean, we're, we're talking the mayor. Atlantic City, yes, it's not a huge population. It's maybe about 40,000, but it is a huge part of New Jersey. So you yeah. would think the mayor of Atlantic City and the governor would be in constant communication. But this was not the case back in 2016 as they were clashing. So, yes, that was that's just one example. One but, example. And, and also that's, there's a lot of that in politics as well, personal animus mm-hmm. that prevents people who should be working together from actually doing that. And the stakes are high. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, even going back to when I was a community reporter at the NASA Herald covering the Five Towns area of Long Island. Shout out to the Richners. <laughs> yeah. Yes. My first job uh, after graduating Hofstra it was a great training ground. And, you know, the Five Towns area at the time, a lot of divisions, especially at the school board level yeah. in Lawrence. Yeah. So, you know, I saw the, the process there and how messy it got. And I always got thrown in the middle of that. I would get both sides upset at me. So I must have been doing a decent yes. job if I if got everyone mad, upset. you're doing your job as a reporter, 100%. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. But yes, no, I all the time I see that. And I you know, I try my best as a as a journalist to kind of not get sucked into the drama, of course. Try to right. stick to the issues, but it can be a challenge. And remember that you're there to serve the readers. Mhm. Exactly. Yes. And also like this stuff is complicated, and even though I've been a finance reporter for a while, I'm still learning every day about everything that goes in, that's involved with yeah. the debt process. Right now, I'm covering you know debt on a uh, more private sector level with commercial real estate, also public as well. Oh, I want to get into. I definitely yeah. want to get into what you're seeing on the commercial real estate scene here in New York. But first, I just have another question, sort of a personal question. What made you decide to? develop your expertise in finance? It kind of happened by accident, honestly, because I was a reporter at the NASA Herald for four years and right out of, right out of Hofstra when I, after I graduated. And I was trying to get a job at a daily newspaper like Newsday mm-hmm. or you know another uh, daily paper. And it was very competitive at the time in mm-hmm. terms of getting those jobs. And I started seeing a lot of openings for financial reporting jobs mm. on these journalismjobs.com and other websites. And and one of them in particular, Institutional Investor News at the time, they said that, you know, you didn't have to have experience with mm-hmm. it, that they would train you. And so I decided to give it a shot. And that's kind of, you know, the rest is history in a lot of ways. And um, that's I, interesting, because for me as a reporter, I think I'm more I'm, I'm liberal arts major. So I think I'm more of like a people. What's your story? What's the mm-hmm. drama? What's the personalities? Like, that's the kind of story I could sink my teeth into. But when I was doing something about finance, about investment, or whenever I, when I was assigned that kind of story, it wasn't a natural for me as it- a as a reporter. Yeah, no. And, and, and then to make it, to understand it myself, and then to make it understandable for readers was, at once and once, sometimes I would say to people, you know, talk to me like I'm an idiot. And I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> That's the best way to get quotes sometimes. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, I, and I'll admit when I first started reporting at the NASA Herald, I mean, I was covering a lot of uh, school board issues and budget issues. And they also had a big bond vote at the time for capital improvements. So you really learn how you learn how the world works when you cover those kinds of meetings. Absolutely. No, no, a hundred percent. And I'd be lying at the time if I, you know, I'd be, yes, I was covering this bond vote and it was a big story. And, but it was, I'd be lying if I said that I completely knew at the time what I was covering. Right. And and I think it's a lesson for everyone. Don't be be afraid to ask questions. It's okay to be stupid. Exactly. Yeah. And there's no, the, the whole cliche, there's not a stupid question is really true. And if they think you're a moron, well, who cares? 
Exactly. Yeah. And and honestly, a lot, a lot of my journalism friends who I've spoken to in the past are intimidated by the idea. I'll mention like different jobs that are open in, you know, as a financial reporter and they get intimidated. They say, oh, I'm really bad at math. And well, so am I, you know, and, and it's <laughs> and look at me. Exactly. Like I try to tell them, like the same principles of journalism apply to financial reporting. It doesn't always have to be dry and wonky. There's ways you can liven these stories. And there's always a personal angle. There's always a personality. There's always some kind of conflict that you can get into. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I I did that plenty, certainly with Atlantic City when I covered it at Bombayer. Now I'll do, you know, when there's a deal that might get finished in terms of, uh, you know, a developer getting a big loan for a project. Well, well, you know, know, there's there's usually a story behind that, you know, in terms of, especially in this market where it's a lot more challenging. Well, and it's fascinating. So I would like to segue now into what you're covering these days, Mm -hmm. and that is the commercial real estate market here in New York City. What's going on? Well, a lot is going on. But, I mean, the big big issue at the moment is what's going to happen with the office market. And, you know, we're now – we're almost at the third anniversary of the start of the pandemic. And, you know, obviously at the beginning of the pandemic, almost everybody – was working remotely at that point. And, you know, the feeling at the time, though, was that, well, eventually office occupancy is going to return to normal levels. And there were efforts to try to get that going in 2021, but there was a couple false starts, I guess you could say. You know, you know, just as everyone was kind of ramping up, you had the Delta variant that right. popped up. Soon, right, all these days. We're going to come back on X date and then... Yeah, uh, Omicron. Omicron and it was always Delta. something. It was always something. And, and you know... We're, and plus, people like working in their yoga pants. <laughs> yeah, and there was a, a lot of headwinds facing office. That was just one of it, part of it. But, you know, I think also, like, as a lot of companies realized in, in 2020 that, you know, we people can work remotely and be effective. And it's going to happen. Say, what are you hearing, if anything, about the whole area around Penn Station, the Vornado? Well, you know, there's been a lot of proposals to build big office towers. But, you know, now now there's concerns about from even from Vornado, who's been pretty bullish, you know, as a company, they've been pretty bullish about the office sector. And there's, you know, even they've started to admit on earnings calls that things are changing and that, you know, they might have to revisit that project. I will say though that class A properties are still doing very well. Like ah. one one Vanderbilt for example, not far from where we're recording is I mean that's 100%, you know, that opened in 29 I forget the exact date it opened, but it opened recently mm-hmm. and, and not that long ago and it was it's 100% occupied and you know with very very high rents cuz it has the most modern amenities and it's got everything that hmm. uh, you know what companies need to, tr- to attract people to the office. So that's Class A? A Class A, yeah. Like, I, like a Class A plus, I would say. Even. Yeah, you know, well, One World Trade Center, obviously, is another Class A property that people know. Those properties, I think, are going to do okay. It's the ones that are the older properties that there's a lot of concerns with. The Class B properties, the ones that were built in the, the 60s, the 70s, even the 80s, and they don't attract the tenant mm. class that these trophy assets attract. Those are the ones that are going to have some challenges. And, and in some cases, I think, you know, they might be converted perhaps to multifamily mm-hmm. or some maybe in some cases life sciences, although that can be a challenging with the floor plates. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, what's interesting, though, is that these Class B properties, the older ones 
are actually more equipped to be converted to multifamily, like the ones built in the 60s and 70s, you know, just the way the designs are. Hmm. And so the ones that were built in the 80s, those are kind of almost in no man's land at this point because, you know, they might not be able to survive long term as an office property, but they're also not really conducive to be converted into multifamily. So those are ones to wow, watch as well. Wow, that's interesting. So I never did like that 80s architecture. I guess my <laughs> instinct was right there. So are the owners and managers of these buildings freaking out right now? Are they running out of money? What are they going to do? I, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, listen, I think a lot of them, people I speak to in the industry, they're trying to, they're trying to remain optimistic. But, you know, you are seeing signs that, you know, there is concern about about especially office, uh, you know, re- obviously retail has had its own challenges even pre-COVID, mm. and others hospitality has its challenges, but that's starting to bounce back as tourism bounces mm-hmm. back. You know, the business-centric hotels might struggle a little bit more, but in terms of office, I think, I think there is an acknowledgement that yes, there is going to be a need for office properties, but there's going to be less of them. How about um, in the suburbs? You know, there's those office parks where we live in mm-hmm. Nassau County. Sure. There's also been talk of some of those dying strip malls of them maybe becoming housing. What are you hearing about the burbs? Yeah, no, suburb. I mean, there there was some optimism at the beginning of the pandemic, or like the first year of the pandemic, that office, the suburban office properties, there would be a large demand for that because people would want to be in that setting. That has not played out necessarily yeah. so far, at least. I mean, there are some suburban properties that are doing well. And again, it's the the nicer, the newer, mm-hmm. nicer buildings in most cases uh, that are performing well. But they're, they're having their own challenges with uh, remote working trends. I mean, there are a lot of companies now that are having people come back maybe two days a week, maybe three days a week. So if that's the case, then yes, there will be a need for office, but there will be a need for less office space. Mm -hmm. And so even if companies are doing a hybrid working schedule, then, you know, most likely they're going to decrease their office footprint, not decrease. So that's eventually going to add up in terms of office um, values uh, Mm. long term. All right. Well, we're approaching the end of our time. So I just want to go back. Now we're going to bookend back with the debt ceiling. So if I'm just a regular person out there and, you know, life is stressful, the economy's uncertain, my kids are having a hard time with post-COVID schooling, got a lot going on. Now I got to worry about this. I got to worry about that. Now I got to worry about this debt ceiling. What should people think when they read about this fight going on? Like, how can they reassure themselves? And then is there anything that regular people can do, whether it's reaching out to their local officials, congresspersons, whatever? How do we manage this added stress on our lives in in the national conversation? Well, the first thing I would tell people is, don't watch cable news. I used to be a cable news junkie, I'll admit, but it's <laughs> it's gotten I mean so crazy, especially in the last, you know, 6 years or so. It's it, there's just so much a lot and a lot of times you watch it it's the same points over and over again right. and and you know, they feast on conflict. I think the best way to keep up with hmm, um the news is is through reading, you know, reading certain publications or websites. I think well, you know, obviously yours. The, well, exactly. Commercial Commer- Observer. Oh, yeah. We're, we're always on top of things. Um, what, I think- what else should people... Where, yeah, what, that's a really good point. Where's a trusted place for people to get their news about this? Well, I think the, the Wall Street Journal yeah. does... You know, they have pretty balanced coverage, I would say, of everything. Um, but, you know, the, the other thing also, be, beyond just reading up on it, is just to, you know, to remember that you know, kind of use history as your guide. You know, this is this has come up before, 
and it and yes, it's gotten a little scary at times, like 2011. But it history shows it usually gets uh, there. There usually is a resolution at the end of the day. The process might be messy. And listen, if the stock market does go down for a period, mm-hmm. it's a marathon, not a sprint. These mm-hmm. these things go in cycles. I mean, that's the best. That's the best very good perspective. That's a very good perspective. This has happened before. Many times mm-hmm. it will likely happen again. Even if it does get messy, things have a way of finding their balance again. And you have people, you know, you have the president not wanting this to happen. You have Kevin McCarthy not wanting this to happen. You have the Wall Street Journal saying it's unlikely that it's going to happen. So there, there is some reassurance there. Um, yes. Is there anything that people should be encouraging their local, uh, their um, congressional yeah, I, I representatives? would. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would say, yeah, they should definitely urge them to address this and not let it get to not let it get to that point, like in 2011, where we're basically hours before <laughs> the debt limit being reached. I think that would probably be the best. There's probably other ways to phrase it, but that would yeah. be the best thing to to touch, try to avoid getting making it so dramatic and just come up to a deal beforehand. I mean, of course, it's human nature sometimes to leave deadlines to the end. Mm-hmm. But in this case, especially, that's, you know, n- nobody benefits when that happens. And maybe they could be reminded, you know, your partisan fights are great, maybe for your fundraising. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they may get you more attention in the press and on social media. But at the end of the day, we send you there to work this stuff out. So just like we were talking about Remember Your Reader, Remember your constituents. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's, you said it well. And listen, people have a voice though. I think, you know, that, you know, whether it's calling or it's sending a letter, sending an email, you know, there's most of these elected officials, they pay attention to that stuff. They sure do. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know firsthand. Exactly. <laughs> so Andrew Cohen from Commercial Observer and of Bond Buyer from your past and from the Herald and Hofstra and all that great stuff. I want to thank you for Breaking this down, demystifying it, making it interesting and relevant. I did my best. You did great. I appreciate you having me on and be glad to come back again sometime. I would love to have you back on because things are probably just going to continue to be (laughs) as interesting. (laughs) And we'll keep it covered here on Cut to the Chase. If you like what you hear, rate us with five stars. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to tell your friends. Take care. Take care.